Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Let me start off by saying who this message is intended for. I've got two primary audiences. The first are those who last week got baptized. There are 40 people here who got baptized last week at the Michiana Christian Service Camp. Had a great Sunday last Sunday. Give a hand for those that got baptized last week. Very good. Thank you to so many of you who participated last week and volunteered and helped, and I love the camp setting and had a great week last week. So, if you are one of the ones who got baptized last week, and a week later you are still committed to Christ and showing up to church, trying to be engaged in the community that belongs to Jesus, let me say, way to go. And I say that only to say, you know, that isn't always the case. It's a very common occurrence, not just here, but in all churches I'm aware of, that people who make a decision like baptism can sometimes soon after disappear. And you can see that when we watch old baptism videos. We go, oh, where are they? We haven't seen them in a long... Like that's, sometimes that's the stuff that happens over time. And sometimes it's a simply a fundamental misunderstanding of what baptism is all about. People can have twisted views of the point. See, baptism is not your lucky rabbit's foot. It is not your religious good luck charm. It is not your get-out-of-hell-free card. But sometimes deep in the recesses, deep back in people's minds, that's kind of the thinking behind it. So once the baptisms happen, check mark, and then they just kind of fade away. We never see them again. But other times, they just lose their way. It isn't like they didn't intend to follow Jesus. Just something happened along the way, and they lost sight of what it now means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, what I think is interesting is Jesus kind of even talks about this. Like, in the gospel, he tells this story. They called it parables back then, but it's a story about, let me, Jesus categorizes like four different kinds of people in regards to their response to the Word of God. Like, he says it's the parable of the sower, and the seed is the Word of God, and when it gets thrown out, it falls on four different kinds of people. And so, this passage in itself, I think, is worth meditating on and asking kind of person am I? Like, out of these four categories, which one would my life more typically fall under in regards to my response to the Word of God, my response to the kingdom of God and to the gospel? And what Jesus says is, for some people, they're kind of like a path. So that's the metaphor he uses. And the seed or the Word of God falls on their life, and their life looks like a path. And so he'll go on and say, in Matthew 13, verse 19, what happens then is, The evil one, meaning the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. See, because your life is a path, when the Word of God hits it, it doesn't go very far. And for whatever reason, Satan is very capable and very easily is able just to snatch right back from your life the Word that that gets planted. So some people are kind of like the path. Others, he'll say, he'll use the metaphor of, they're like a rocky place. And so when the seed or the Word of God falls on their life, it's like it falls on a rocky place. And in this, he says in verse 20 and 21, this is the man who hears the Word and at once receives it with joy. Now listen, that happens here all the time. Like, in fact, we just kind of know, like if somebody shows up to Livingstone's church and it's your first time here and you hear the Word of God and you get all excited and you're like, I'm all in and you sign up for everything and every group imaginable, even groups that you can't be in because of your gender, but you've checked everything, like we kind of know... you probably never, we probably won't see you ever again. Like that's typically, and I don't know why, but that's typically, in my mind, it's like it goes back to that idea of yeah, they're like it's the rocky path where the seed hits, but because it doesn't have a root, it says Jesus will go on and say, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. 
when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Now, a third category Jesus mentions is when your life looks more like thorns. And so the word of God falls in your life and your life looks like thorns. He'll say in verse 22 of Matthew 13, the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and it makes it unfruitful. And then he'll go on to say, but the fourth kind of person is the good soil. And in this, when the Word of God lands in your life, verse 23, this person hears the Word and understands it. And then they produce a crop. I mean, it yields 100 or 60 or 30 times what was sown. Now, here's what you need to know. Like, every category will be tested by Satan. And I'm not saying that to freak you out. I don't think you should walk out of here and thinking, you know, there's a demon behind every corner and you got... No, 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 listen. We know 1 John 4, 4 tells us that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. You have the Holy Spirit. You belong to Jesus. You don't need to walk around always scared to death and paranoid. I just, at the same time, I don't want us to be caught off guard that, in fact, if you just got baptized, you might have thought, boy, I bet it's going to be great now. My life is going to be perfect. And you might have discovered this past week, no, (laughs) that didn't happen at all. Just to remind you, do you remember what happens to Jesus after his baptism? Do you remember what Jesus happens right next to his life? He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by Satan, right? For 40 days he's tempted by Satan. So just in case you thought that getting baptized was going to make things easier and that the money was going to start pouring in and all the blessings were going to be overwhelming, let me just say it's possible that things could be rough. And if that does happen, I don't want you to think your baptism didn't take effect or that God somehow has forgotten about you. It's actually a very normal and common experience even for the Son of God. So here's what we're going to do. Just hang on to Jesus, and he's going to hang on to you, and you will get through it. So this message is for those who got baptized last week. But second, the audience is for the rest of us that have already committed ourselves to be followers of Jesus. I want to speak a word to us that probably isn't particularly new. Like, you're not going to walk out of here and think, that Sam is brilliant, and I've never heard that before. I mean, I am brilliant, but listen, you've heard this before, this We tend to need reminders often. Repetition, we know, is the key to learning. And we know this to be true in all areas of our life. When you want to do something as if it were second nature to you, you have to do it over and over again. Like, practice makes perfect. And Paul's letters, he will say this phrase often, I want to remind you, and then he'll go on and he'll teach something that they've already heard before, and he doesn't apologize ever for repeating again what they have already heard because he knows if you hear it again and again, it has a better likelihood of sticking, right? It's like, we know it's true in life. We don't want our kids to wonder if we love them. And when they ask, "Do do you love me? For us to respond, what are you talking about? Don't you remember when I told you back in 2009 I loved you? Like... No, no, we tell our kids often, we love you, I love you, I love you, right? We don't want them to ever forget, we want it to stick. And so our text this morning is going to be in Philippians chapter 3. So if you brought your Bibles, you could turn to Philippians chapter 3, and it begins in verse 1 with Paul unapologetically repeating something. He'll say in Philippians 3 verse 1, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. You were saying, like, I'm going to repeat myself, but that's no, that's no problem for me. I don't mind repeating myself. And it's a safeguard for you. It's for your safety and your protection. And I don't know if you've ever driven around or up a mountain or down a mountain, like maybe in the Ozarks or, you know, the Rocky Mountains. And some of those places on the road are kind of scary, aren't they? Like, you're looking over the edge of the, 
the road, the, the mountain, and you're thinking, if this car veers to the right at all, I mean, that's it. It's a, and so whenever we see guardrails there, we recognize, oh, the guardrail is there for our protection. It's a safeguard. Like, you don't ever travel the mountainside, and when you see the guardrail, think to yourself, man, why are you trying to box me in? Like, that's just, right? No, we get it. No, glad it's there. You don't come down the mountain just slightly thinking, these guardrails are cramping up my freedom. We recognize the terrain is dangerous and the guardrails are for our protection. It is our safety. And the truth is, it isn't just the newly baptized that can lose sight of a larger goal. We're all in need of being reminded of the larger goal. Because even if you've been at Jesus for decades, sometimes we forget. The Christian life is oftentimes just like the gym. Like, you know what the worst time to go to the gym is? You know what it is? Yeah, January 2nd. You know why? Because it's packed, right? You can't find a machine to work out on. you got all these new people. They're not wiping up their sweat from the... Right, I mean, it's just... But if you'll just wait three weeks, you know what's going to happen? It'll go back to the way it was before January 2nd. Because what happens? People lose sight of, they lose vision, they lose intentionality. They don't lose means. The gym itself is the means... But over time, you can lose the vision of that new life you intended to, to, to want to receive. And why? Sometimes we need to hear again, even in the Christian life, when we gave our life to Jesus, this is what we signed up for. This is why we did it. This is our end goal. And we need to hear, you can do that. And we all need that, not just those who are recently baptized, but those of us who decades in might be weary or tired or simply distracted. There is power in words, and sometimes we need to hear, this is what we're going for, and you can do it. It's sort of like I remember uh, pouring concrete uh, during college. I'd come home in the summer, and I poured concrete with the Pabzinski brothers. There were two ex-Marine sergeants who started a concrete business, and that's who I worked for. They, were, uh, they worked hard. I mean, they were brutal in it. And so I was the summer scrub. And uh, I'll never forget the first week I'd been pouring concrete. I, it was hot. I'm burned. I got scrapes everywhere. I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life, ever, like ever. And it was so miserable, I thought to myself by the end of the week, I'm quitting. Like, I'm not sticking this out. There's no way. I mean, they could pay me thousands, and it would not be worth what I've had to go through this week. And so my brain, I've already thought, I'm done. Like, I'll finish this week, and, and then I'm quitting. And I'll never forget, I got back in the truck with Bruce was his name. We're headed back to uh, the headquarters and we'd finish up the day. And Bruce lets me know that typically during the summer, they go through a couple summer scrubs. That's what I was, come back for the summer. Like they just kind of, they don't ever last. They kinda, and Bruce said, but the guys and I have been talking, we think you're going to make it. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I've already decided to quit. <laughs> like, I'm out. But I don't know what it happened, but as soon as he said that, I thought to myself, I can't quit now. Like, like this pride rose up in me. I thought, I've got to stick. And so I stuck out the whole summer. I came back the next summer and poured concrete with the Pabzinskis again. There's something about hearing, listen, and we think you're going to make it. And so to people who, 40 different people got baptized last week, listen, you need to hear from the rest of us, we think you're going to make it. And for those of you who have been in Christ for decades and might find yourself in a place of exhaustion or just weary or tired or maybe have just forgotten why, we've did, why we did this, you need to hear, this is why we did this, and we think you're going to make it. And so I want us to look at the end first, and there's a reason why, because the end is the point. It's important in life to have the end goal in mind, where we are ultimately headed. What is my final destination? And having answered that, I can now work backwards and see the point of what it is that I'm doing. It's sort of like a blueprint is vital because it gives us the end goal. 
This is what everything is going to look like in the end. Now the electricians understand their role, and it makes sense because of the master plan. The plumbers understand, got it, that's what we're doing, and that's what we're all contributing to. The drywallers, they got, this is what we're all aiming for. Otherwise, you could get lost and frustrated in the process, and you can't see the forest through the trees. And nobody likes to live frustrated. Remember the, um, the, that, the original Karate Kid movie, right? It was the best. Like, if you've not seen Karate Kid, you need to go after church and go watch Karate Kid. But do you remember that scene where Mr. Miyagi has had Daniel's son painting the fence and wax on, wax off, and he's sanding the deck? Do you remember this scene where at the end, he's just exhausted? He's done all the chores. He doesn't get it. He's frustrated. He's going to quit. So there's this big, intense conflict where Daniel's son and Mr. Miyagi, he's like, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm tired of doing your chores. And in that moment, Mr. Miyagi says, show me wax on throws a punch. He says, show me paint the fence. And what happens is Danielson in this moment catches a vision for he's been learning karate the entire time and he didn't know it. Now he was frustrated in his lack of awareness, but as soon as it all comes together and he gets the big picture, all of a sudden it makes sense. And sometimes we could do the same thing in the Christian life. Like there is a reason why we serve. And there's a reason why we worship. And there is a reason why we get involved in groups. There is a, like all those things have rationales, but sometimes in the midst of it, it's, you, you can lose sight of the big goal, the end picture. This is why we do these things, because it's leading to something else, which is our end goal. And life is better when it is lived with a future orientation. It's good to have things illuminate what's directly in front of you. I want to see the path that I'm on, but if I'm really going to excel in life, it needs to be a high-beam vision, like not just the deer that's right in front of me. I want to see the deer that's 200 yards up the street. That's what gives me a high-beam vision. It's important to live life with a future orientation because it allows me now to make, make decisions today for that preferred future. The worst decisions I think we make in life are when we're in survival mode. Like when we're just trying to keep our heads above water, when we go from one crisis to the next, we tend to make the worst decisions. And I'm telling you, there are people who live their entire life in crisis mode, from one crisis to the next, one emergency to the next. They don't think about next week because they're simply trying to survive this week. They can't think about next month because every decision is being made on how to survive this month. It's a low-beam existence that sabotages the end goal. And this is true in finances, it's true in relationships, in our education, in our health. And what Paul gives us is a high-beam look as he wraps up his teaching in Philippians chapter 3. So let me begin at the end. Go to Philippians 4 verse 1 real quick. This is how he wraps up all of chapter 3. He'll say this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the 1984 NIV NIV version. I love how it says it this. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. That our end goal is standing firm in the Lord. Where are we headed? We're going to stand firm in Jesus. And Paul here, chapter 4, verse 1, tells us, I just got done telling you how you're going to do that. So immediately your mind should go, I need to go back and read Philippians 3 to find out how I then stand firm in the Lord because this is our end goal. This is our long-term high-beam orientation. And so if you were baptized last Sunday, what do we want? We want you to be able to stand firm in the Lord. And if you were baptized into Jesus decades ago, what do we need reminded of? How to stand firm in the Lord. So we know that Paul has just told us this is how to do it. So let's take a look at this. Now, the first thing you'll need to know when you go back to chapter 3, verse 2, Paul's going to begin 
with this idea of putting your past in its proper perspective. Like if you want to stand firm in the Lord, you're going to have to deal with your past and you're going to put your past in its proper perspective. A proper theology of baptism includes the idea that the old you died in Christ. The post-baptism you is a new you. This is a new life. This is what Paul will say in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Meaning the old you has died. Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live what? A new life. It's a new me. For if we have been united with him In a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should be no longer slaves to sin. Therefore, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. So when you think about your life in its totality and you're marking your life, there will be two main categories of of marking your life. The before Christ you and the after Christ you. Think of it like, like dating a chick. You've got B.C., before Christ, and A.D., meaning after Christ, or Anno Domini, which means the year of the Lord. What I mean by that is that was Christopher B.C., but now that he's been baptized, it's Christopher A.D. That was Sam B.C., before Christ, but this is Sam A.D., But you're going to have to place your past in the proper perspective. Listen, a dunk in a pool isn't going to change 30 years of thoughts and habits and attitudes and behaviors, even though what we're saying is, no, listen, it's a new you. But it's the new you that has to put the old you in its proper place. And the first place you need to look is, look out for the saboteurs, right? I like that word. It sounds so fancy. Saboteurs. It's like I need a pastry while I'm saying it. Now, this might be news for some of you, but... Not everyone is going to be thrilled with the new you. They want the old you back. They like the you that did drugs with them. They like the you that would go out and get drunk with them all the time. They like the you, the old you, that didn't include Jesus. And they're going to try to pull you back to the old you. They're going to try to sabotage you, even if they don't intend to, even if they don't mean to, for whatever reasons, whether it's that's what they know or that was how your relationship was kind of founded anyhow, or the new you makes them feel guilty, I don't know. And so you'll hear things all the time. You'll hear like, man, you've changed. But they're not meaning that positively. Like, hey, congrats, like, you're not even the same anymore. You've really changed. Or they might say things like, oh, you think you're better than me now? Like, that's what you think? And they'll throw something in your past up in front of your face to remind you, that I know who you really are, right? I helped you bury the body. And now you're going to tell me, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> or they're going to say things like, you know, come on, just one more time, okay? Just one more time, and then I, I, I get it. They're, they're going to want you to be the old you and committed to the past. And here's what Paul will say. No, you've got you to deal with your past. You've got to put it in proper perspective. And so in Philippians 3 verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, that's his saboteurs, the circumcision group. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, listen, I've got more. 
And what Paul is saying is he's trying to deal with his past, and he's recognizing there are saboteurs out here who are trying to take me back to have confidence in the flesh, and my only confidence now is in Jesus. What Paul is saying here is Jesus is greater than your past. In fact, we now look back at our past with Jesus as our new filter. And when we have Jesus as our new filter, it changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. It it changes our measuring stick. It doesn't matter what you used to be before Christ and how great the world might have thought that is. Now that we're in Christ and are looking through his filter, it changes how we view everything. So the Melissa B.C. before Christ, she might have had all of that in her old life. She might be smoking hot. Guys trying to call her all the time, wanting to go out, never lacking in attention, always getting poked on Facebook. She might have had a good job driving a fancy car with all the bells and whistles. That's Or Larry, B.C. He might have had all that in his old life, according to the world. Maybe he was climbing the corporate ladder, well-respected, an impressive investment portfolio. In fact, he had all the toys that would make any man jealous. We're talking from the boat to the car to the motorcycle to the collectibles. Or Nick, before Christ, he might be well-respected in his field. In fact, he's got a B.A., an M.A., a Ph.D., an E.D., a you name the whatever letter he's got on his resume. He's an expert, published widely in the academic journals, continually being invited to the speaking circuit to articulate his theories and finding, always being called for advice and counsel. See, but now Melissa, Larry, and Nick can look back at their B.C. life, and based on the world standards, they might be tempted to have confidence. They might even tempted to brag. They can, at moments, want to look fondly on it. But now, because of Jesus A.D., Melissa, Larry, and Nick can now see that old life through the filter of Jesus and how important it is. So listen to how Paul puts it in verse 4 of Philippians 3. He says, listen, he's talking about, if anyone's got confidence, it's me. Listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In fact, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I even went so far as to persecute the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But now listen, this is Paul A.D. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In fact, when I look back, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, Paul looks back on Paul B.C. and all that he could place his confidence in, and he says, listen, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. What Paul is saying is, Jesus is greater than anything I had in my old life. Money, Jesus is greater. Fun doing drugs, oh, Jesus is greater. Corporate success, I'd give it all up in a heartbeat for Jesus. Jesus is greater than everything. And what's interesting, most of your translations don't reveal this, but he uses some very strong language in verse 8. He says, when I look back on it, I consider it, some of your translations will say garbage, some of it will say rubbage. But the Greek word and this is the only time it's even used in the New Testament, is ekubalon. And it literally is translated as human excrement. That's the translation. Not just rubbish, not just garbage. The word is crap. What Paul is saying is, now that I have Jesus, I look back at my whole life with 
and without him and everything I might have had and everything that I thought I was that I now see it for what it really was, crap. Having Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. Nothing trumps it. This isn't like a compartmental life where I keep this and I have this and I have this and Jesus fits in this room. It's like, no, no, Jesus is life. And I'd give up everything and anything for Jesus. And the history of Christianity is full of men and women who did give up everything for Jesus, even their very own lives. This is what Jesus himself will talk about in the Gospels. He'll say in Matthew 13, verse 44, telling again a story or a parable. He'll say, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, He hid it again, and then in joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Why? Because the treasure in the field was worth more than anything he had. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Or he'll go on and say again, by by way of illustration, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything that he had just so he could buy that pearl. Why? Nothing was more important than that. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And so maybe... In your A.D. life, after you met Jesus, you still have a smoking body. I know that's what happened to me. Maybe in your A.D. life, you still have an executive position. Maybe you have the amazing investment portfolio, but you now view all of it differently. Even though you still possess it, you can now see compared to Jesus, it's crap. And if you want to stand firm in Jesus, you're going to have to put your past in its proper perspective. Not only those who are trying to sabotage you in this new life, but even a new perspective and filter in which to view your old life. But then you need to know the end goal. Like, where are we headed in this? What's our end goal? And he gives it to us in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. I don't know if you're a highlighter kind of person for your Bible. If you are, this is verse 10 and 11, you should highlight it. Or I don't know if you commit Scripture to memory. If you do, uh, these two verses are perfect. Or if you meditate, uh, meditate on these two verses. But here's our end goal. This is what Paul says. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now see, you should go back and just read that over and over again. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that I might be able to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Jesus more than I want to take my next breath. This is vision. This is intention. What do you want? What do you want to be? This speaks to a high beam perspective. And this is why I think it's so important. Like when you ask a kid, what do you want to be in life? That's such an important question because it calls on the kid to have a future orientation. Nothing is more tragic than when kids lose that. When they can't think about their future because they're only trying to survive the day. And what Paul is saying here is, what do you want? Like, this speaks to your desires. This speaks to your intent. What Paul says is, more than anything, I want to know Jesus. And this is the high-beam decision now in life that I start making everything other decisions based on that. What that means is, I'm willing to sacrifice something immediately in survival mode for that preferred future of knowing Jesus. Now that I've given my life to Jesus, what do you want more than anything else? I want to know Jesus more than anything, and all that comes with knowing Jesus, like the power of his resurrection, but also sharing in his sufferings, which most of the time we try to avoid, but Paul recognized, oh no, it's even in Jesus' sufferings and our sharing in that, that transforms us to become just like him in his death so that we can also become just like him in resurrection. Knowing Christ is our high beam vision, and this is where we are going. 
knowing Jesus is how you stand firm in Christ. So my question for you today is, what are you doing to know Jesus? What are you doing to know Christ? Because this only happens intentionally. It's not going to accidentally slip into, you're not going to actually slip into the knowledge of Jesus. You're going to have to pursue it. So what are you doing? And this is how we can really tell whether you really do think Jesus is the greatest if you want to know him more than anything else. Because often, you know, I, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I do, I want to know Jesus, but, you know, I got sports leagues, so I'm busy with that for a while. I mean, I do, I do want to know Jesus, but, you know, I got to mow my yard because my neighbor mowed his yard. Now it doesn't look right. I mean, I do want to know Jesus, but, you know, I've signed up for a dozen other different activities. It's going to take up all my time, so. I mean, I do want to know Jesus, but it's summer, and, you know, summer, it's a, I do, but it's fall, and, you know, school's starting and all, and I, I do, but it's winter, and, you know, snow is yucky, and I do, but it's spring, and, you know, the allergies. I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, here's the truth of the matter. We do what we want to do. Like, we make time for the things that really are the most important to us, and so it becomes a question of, do you really want to know Christ? Like, like Paul says here, like, I want to know Christ more than anything else. And you might be saying, no, I really do, and I don't even know where to go. Like, what do I, Let me just give you a few suggestions. A couple of them we've already talked about. Uh, one suggestion I have for you is uh, groups here at the Livingstones Church. Next week we'll start kickoff sign-ups for them. And so if you've never been involved in one or you have been involved, I highly recommend it as you get to journey with other people to get closer to Jesus and to know Jesus. And so just kind of have that on your radar. Next week we'll begin, uh, you'll see the list, and we'll begin sign-ups. That'd be one place for you to get to know Christ. Or, as we mentioned uh, in the announcements today, this Wednesday night rooted thing could be an avenue by which you get to know Christ. These are intentional steps to know Jesus, and they begin this Wednesday. But Paul does want to remind us here in Philippians 3, because this is important, that you haven't arrived yet. You haven't arrived at your... Listen, that's our end goal, but you're not there yet. See, when you get there, you won't need high beam because there's nothing ahead. Your GPS will have notified you that your destination is on the right. You're there. But you aren't there yet. Anyone walk on water today yet? Anyone? Yeah, see? Me either. Anyone multiply loaves of bread and fish? Me either. Anyone bring the dead back to life today? So you haven't arrived. Neither have I. And when Paul writes this, he he didn't arrive either. High beam is still required. He'll say this in verse 12 of Philippians 3. You know, his end goal is knowing Christ. That's what you've got to talk about. Verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Isn't that important? Paul goes back to that again. You've got to deal with your past. Because as you're moving towards Jesus, your past is going to come back up again. Somebody's going to remind you. Satan's going to remind you. And you don't need to live in the past anymore. You don't live there anymore. So you don't, now that's been forgiven. That's, that's the BC. I'm now the AD and we're moving forward. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Straining towards what is ahead. See, I don't know if you've ever ran track before. Your track coach probably told you, especially if you're on a relay team, don't ever look behind you. Like when you're in a race, don't ever, like if you turn around and look backwards, it will throw off your stride and will slow you down. What do you do? You always look ahead. You find a point in the future, in the distance, that's where you're headed. Keep your eyes focused on that. Paul, in much the same way, is saying the same thing. You don't need to look behind you anymore. Look towards Jesus ahead of you. That's where you're headed. Then he'll say this in verse 15. All of us then who are mature 
should take such a view of things. And if there is a point you think differently, God is going to make that clear too. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And I like the language here in verse 17. He says, join together, which means you can't do this by yourself. Like if you really want to know Jesus, it's not like a, this is not like a, a sport where it's just you. It's a solo activity. Like, no, no, this is what we're talking about, like community of those who have the same goal of knowing Christ. So join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Jesus, of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. By the way, that phrase, their God is their stomach, was a way of saying they only live a low-beam life, like for immediate gratification. That's the God of the stomach, that whatever it is that you want need in the very moment, it's a very low, like that's the... That's a low-beam life, and that's what Paul is saying. That's what some people, like, they live like that, but not you. He says, says, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And that's how you stand firm in the Lord. That is a high-beam perspective, and this is what we are going after. This is our goal. So when you slip, and you will, you let Jesus pick you back up, and you keep headed towards that finish line. And when your mind wanders, and it will, you just guide it back to focus on Jesus. And when that old life starts to call out to you, and you get all sentimental, and all you can recall is seemingly good times, which, by the way, it's funny how our brain does it. Like, if you actually went back to your old life, you'd probably hate it. But our brain plays a trick on us. It gets all sentimental, and all you can remember are the good things. So when it does that, all you have to do is, now with your new filter of Jesus, look back at it for what all of it was compared to Jesus. Crap. And let us move to the end goal. I want to know Christ know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for our rescue. We give you thanks for our salvation. We give you thanks for the new life that you've given to us as a free gift because of what you did through your son Jesus on the cross. So we receive it as an act of your grace, receive it in faith, and we ask now that you would just begin to transform us. We want to know Jesus. So would you protect us, Father, from anything that would call us away from that or anything that would distract us from that end goal? But more than anything, we want to know Jesus. Would you plant that desire deep into our hearts? Would we have a growing passion for just that very thing? And then teach us, Lord, and instruct us. We want to know the power of his resurrection, to be able to share with him in his sufferings, to be transformed in his death, and to be raised again to new life. This is what we pray in Jesus' name.